What I tried to do in the book was to make native-born Americans aware of all the gifts that American democracy has bestowed on them, not in the form of every four-year an election, but in the form of the beauties of daily living in a country where there is no dictatorship and censorship. And I think those are the things that if you have always had this or known this as the only way that your nation has been governed, then you are likely to be blind to the other darker possibilities. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. When I was promoting my last book, The People vs. Democracy, I gave an interview to Tagestim, one of the biggest German news shows. And when I was asked about the causes for the rise of populism, I said that there was the rise of the internet and of social media, there was the stagnation of living standards for ordinary citizens, and there was also what I called in that interview the great experiment we're living through of turning mono-ethnic, monocultural nations into multi-ethnic ones. At the end of the interview, I thought it had gone well, the worst fear of any live interview that you inadvertently go viral had not, I thought, materialized. I slept happily, got on a plane the next day back to the United States. And when I switched on my phone, I had hundreds of emails and messages. And I saw that far-right magazines and newspapers and websites up to the Daily Stormer had picked up on that phrase and said that, Harvard academic at that time I was teaching at Harvard, Yasha Monk admits to being in league with Angela Merkel to do a great experiment on the German people. Well, I regretted that interview a little bit. It resulted in a lot of very unpleasant messages. But I think the phrase is actually right. What is happening around the world is not an experiment, as you know it, from chemistry class where the teacher knows exactly what he's doing and what's going to happen to demonstrate something. It wasn't consciously chosen by anybody, but we are embarked on a new endeavor. As the founding fathers were embarked on a new endeavor in the United States when we built the American Republic at a time when there was little precedent for that working around the world. But that new endeavor is to build fair and equal, diverse democracies, polities which contain citizens of a lot of different ethnicities and a lot of different religions, but they don't have the kind of strict racial and religious hierarchy that has traditionally characterized countries like the United States. And so I decided to write my next book about that great experiment what it would take for it to succeed, and why at a moment when the far right is deeply pessimistic about its prospects for success, but many of my friends and colleagues who are more on the left are also deeply pessimistic about the state of diverse democracies around the world, why at that time we should be sanguine about our ability to construct fair, thriving societies in which we emphasize what we have in common, not what divides us, in which we're not afraid of the kinds of mutual cultural influence we might have, in which we embark on a meaningfully shared life as citizens of these diverse democracies. 
that is the book that I've just finished. I sent the final version, the final-ish version of it to the publishers a couple of days ago after a year or two of hard work and a month or two of very exhausting revisions. It will be out next April under the title The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. And I wanted to be the first to tell you about the book. You can even go and pre-order it on Amazon or elsewhere right now if you feel like it actually does help the book a lot. I will be talking about its themes more over the coming months. When the book is released, I may even have somebody interview me about it. But I thought that you should know about what I've been thinking about and what I'm excited for in the year to come. My guest today is Roya Hakakin. Roya is a wonderful writer. She was born and raised in Iran before emigrating to the United States. And she writes both about Iranian politics and history and about many other subjects, including in her latest book, A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious, about the blessings of living in a liberal democracy and how easy it is to take those freedoms for granted. We had a wide-ranging conversation both about the state of America today and about the prospects for freedom in Iran. I learned a lot from it. I hope you will too. Roya Hakakin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted. So this is a moment of deep pessimism about America and the promise of America, the reality of America. You just wrote a book from the perspective of an immigrant and uh, directed in many ways to immigrant. But I take it really makes the case for why America can and must succeed and why it remains a place of hope for so many people around the world. Why should we continue to believe in the promise of America? Why not? And to look at it from a pessimistic point of view, what else is there? I know that is not a very compelling argument, but the facts are there that we have yet to come up with a better promise or alternative. But I don't like to approach this in a pessimistic way. I think what I tried to do in the book was to actually disguise in the form of advice to immigrants, my arguments to the native-born Americans. I think what I tried to first and foremost say was to make native-born Americans aware of all the gifts that American democracy has bestowed on them, not in the form of, you know, every four-year an election, but in the form of the beauties of daily living in a country where there is no dictatorship and censorship. And I think those are the things that if you have always had this or known this as the only way that your nation has been governed, then you are likely to be blind to the other darker possibilities. And I thought it was time for people to be reminded of in order not to just celebrate this democracy, but also to be able to safeguard it from various threats that we have witnessed in the past four or five years. So I do think that, you know, looking at various movements around the world, various activists who are fighting in their own lands for, you know, equal rights or a democratic future, it's important to see that nearly all of them look to America for support, look to America as a place of hope. And no matter how gloomy we might feel about it, we remain as a beacon of hope for so many others elsewhere. 
how do you press home the point about the things that many American citizens, in a way, understand we take for granted, right? I understand that if you grow up with certain blessings, like the absence of a dictator, like, you know, relative personal freedom, perhaps the natural instinct is not to wake up every morning thinking, you know, thank God I'm not North Korea, or thank God I'm not in Iran, or thank God I'm not in Venezuela, is to look at the things that aren't great in your country and say, you know, why are we putting up with that? So how do we combine an appreciation of what we have and a determination to preserve what we have with, you know, hope to build a better society and redress the injustices and inequalities that are real? Well, first and foremost, I think we have to be able to see them, right? One of the things that I tried to do in the book was to look at the minutia of the freedoms that we have, which somehow most people who have read the book have told me, I didn't realize that that didn't exist in other countries. What's an example of that? An example is we're able to return a garment that we have purchased from a store after two weeks of keeping it. And no one will question us as long as we show a receipt. Where else in the world can you return a garment? The reason we can do that is because consumers have rights in America. And consumers have rights in America because individuals have rights in America. Another perfect example is, you know, I always say, we know what a green light means. We know what a red light means. We know what a yellow light means. And traffic laws are traffic laws wherever you go in the world. But if you go to Syria, if you go to Iran, if you go to any part of the Middle East, the green light doesn't do what it's supposed to do. The green light doesn't tell half the population of cars to go ahead and the other half to stop at a red light. They simply don't work. And the reason they don't work in those countries is because there is no national agreement. There is no participation or belief in fundamental laws of the society. And so even if we have these universal systems that we believe should work everywhere, they simply don't because people must come together in some kind of national covenant in order for these simple things, including traffic laws, to work. And the reason they work here is because for better or worse, whatever inequalities that continue to exist, we have a sense that we basically believe in these laws and want to improve them, and therefore they work. And these important things need to be first and foremost recognized in order to be bolstered, strengthened, or corrected if they need to be. I suppose what you're saying is a version of a point that I often try to explain to audiences when I talk about authoritarian populism, and I'm never quite sure how to really hit home, which is that all of the kinds of things you worry about when a dictator is in charge or when, you know, democratically elected leaders really start to undermine the balance of powers seem very abstract to ordinary citizens for a long time, right? They think, well, you know, who really cares if a president is now taking a decision that really should have been taken by some bureaucrat and independent institution? It doesn't affect my life at all. And of course, over time, when you undermine the rule of law, it does start to affect citizens in these very concrete ways. And so I take it in your example of a traffic light, it's in part because there's not good law enforcement, in part because cops are corrupt, in part because if you're politically connected, you can cross the light on red and nobody will do anything about it. Tell us a little bit how this is connected to the absence of political liberty. Well, you're against the system. 
when you live in a dictatorship, right? You don't believe in the system at all. You don't believe that the system is just, and you don't believe that the system is there in any way, shape or form to serve you. And therefore you're confronting the system at every point possible. So in certain places, you are a victim. You cannot get at the system, say at the place of work, you know, at your employment, if you challenge them, you lose your job and you can't afford to lose your job. But if you're driving and you can go through a red light to get back at the system, you do. So wherever there is no consequence, if you can somehow undermine the system, if you can somehow voice your objection, which skipping or going through a red light can mean just that, you do. And therefore, it becomes a society that, you know, someone was telling me that it was a Belgian person who had to live in Iran for a summer. And she said to me that the only way she could drive was by a car ahead of her because there was no other, <laughs> there were no other laws that she could abide by that she would be safe other than making sure that she knew where the next person was going. And that's how, you know, the fabric of the laws, the society, everything, a notion of fundamental trust that can move us toward any direction or any future that a nation might hope for comes apart. And that's precisely what has happened in Iran. And that's precisely what happens, you know, wherever you go. And, you know, democracy is not in place. You grew up in Iran before you fled the regime. The way you talk about it now makes it sound like most people consider the regime illegitimate or they see it as, you know, the reality that you have to deal with without any particular affection. Tell us a little bit about the ideological evolution of a regime. I'm always interested in the fact that many dictatorships start with some amount of real buy-in from the population. And then there's a moment when that sort of goes away and, you know, the powerful have an interest in perpetuating the power, you know, citizens have to get along because, you know, otherwise they will go to prison or, you know, be punished. But really any sheen of legitimacy has gone. I think people often place that moment in Eastern Europe around 1968, when the Soviet Union crushed attempts at reform in Czechoslovakia. The idea being that before that, you know, not every Pole, not every Czechoslovakian liked the regime, many deeply disliked it. But there was some sort of hope among a broader swath of the population that some of the ideals of a regime may in fact be salutary, that they may be able to build a better society. And certainly the people in charge believed. And when suddenly you have a moment when there may be apparatchiks who continue to perpetuate the rule, there may be a few true believers in the population, but really the ghost has given up. The fervency is gone. Has Iran reached that point yet? And if so, when? I love that question because I've watched Iran for the last 42 years. And there have been times where I've said, this is it. This is it. And then there has been a next moment when I felt like, you know, if the last one wasn't it, this one surely is. So I think the evolution sort of was from 1979 when the revolution did take place until about 10 years after when the founder of the Iranian revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, was still alive, the sense of ideology, the sense of grand belief that, you know, Islam had been somehow resurrected in Iran and that there was this pan-Islamist dream that he was perpetuating, which had gotten hold of the country. And, you know, 
it was also a time when we had no Osama bin Laden yet. We didn't have Al-Qaeda. We didn't have all these other movements that came afterwards to show us what a horrendously awful, violent, and bleak future they would bring about. So he, at the time, appeared, at least to many Iranian intellectuals, as some kind of a Mahatma Gandhi, but Islamicized. And he appeared authentic, and he appeared genuine, and he seemed, in some ways, self-sacrificing, that he was willing to give whatever he had for the cause of a better future. That All that became very clearly to be untrue within the first two, three years after the revolution when, you know, so many awful things happened, including the cutting of the ties with the United States, the start of the war between Iran and Iraq. That was one of the longest, most devastating wars of the 20th century. But also the rounding up of all of the leftist secular groups in Iran and the cultural revolution that didn't really owe anything to Mao's or had nothing less than Mao's cultural revolution in the way that it completely overhauled all universities and education system in Iran and so much else. And of course, one of the biggest things that happened was that the mandatory veiling was reinstituted in Iran, which prior to the revolution was, was a choice that women could dress as they had wished. So I think in the first 10 years of the revolution, his presence was some kind of a pillar for people. As long as he was around, there was a sense of hope that we will get there, even if we are slightly delayed. And once he died, which came about in 1988, and the war between Iran and Iraq also ended, and the country was in ruin and he was no longer there and there was so much devastation. I think so much of the hope that had been tied to him and to the revolution simply dissipated. But if I were to choose a point at which a new generation, the generation that had been born in 1979, knew nothing of the revolution and had come of age in its aftermath, that generation also lost hope. That would be the 2009 elections when Mahmoud Ahmadinejad claimed to have won his second term of presidency and the votes were stolen. And it was what we at the moment in 2009 thought of as the green movement. I don't know if you remember, but you know, millions of Iranians took to the streets with green flags and green banners. And in many ways, I would argue that that was the start of the Arab Spring. Iran torched the region in that magnificent image of all the green, you know, greenery on the streets of all big cities throughout the country. And thereafter, I think every elections in Iran is virtually illegitimate because that was a stolen election. And we learned that no matter how much people participated, made an effort to do it right, to do it through the legal procedures in the country to reinstall someone that they wished to power, it would fail. And I think thereafter, there has been no faith in elections and no faith in the regime or its possibility to change. The Green Movement in Iran, incidentally, was also the starting point of the sort of highest phase of tech utopianism in the United States and other countries. When you go back to some of the most influential articles arguing that 
Twitter and Facebook is going to bring down dictators all around the world, which was a mainstream belief as recently as, you know, 10 or perhaps six, seven years ago. It didn't start with the Arab Spring. It really started with a green movement in Iran. That's where most of those articles were first published. It's very interesting to think about in retrospect. How has the country evolved since the Green Revolution? We just had a presidential election there, which appears to be the one with least popular participation since 1979, if I'm not mistaken. The one that was most nakedly an attempt to install the favoured successor of a political regime, the presidency, and perhaps put that a little bit in context of a sort of strange semi-democratic system that Iran has long had, which is to say that it clearly is a dictatorship, it's not a free country, but it did at various points have a genuine electoral mechanism that allowed for some competition within the elite. So tell us about the nature of elections as it was, say, 20 years ago, and how that has changed leading up to you know this last election that I think has least of a serious pretense to have allowed some modicum of choice to the Iranian people. Well, the procedures haven't changed. It's that um, there was a belief on the part of the people that if they participated and chose the candidate that they wished, then they could succeed. And 2009 was a turning point because they did participate. They did really, truly invested in the candidate that should have won office in 2009. But, you know, he was actually placed under house arrest for years and years after that election. And I think that the only thing that changed was that people realized that no matter how much they participate, it's really up to the supreme leader to first choose the initial candidates. And then, you know, at the end of the day, no matter how many people have participated and how many votes they've cast for whomever it is that they want, even those whom he allows to run will not all be able to be elected unless it is precisely the candidate that he has in mind. And I think this election proved this beyond the shadow of the doubt. I think what's most important and something that has happened since 2009 is that there was some modicum of hope that in this face-off between reformists and hardliners, that choosing a reformist would make a difference. But we've had two reformist presidents in office for the span of 16 years, and neither one was able to accomplish anything, not even the simplest promises that they had made, even the smallest things like opening up sports stadiums to both men and women, something that is happening in Saudi Arabia, for God's sake. The reformist presidents couldn't even deliver on these very basic things. So I think what became most clear as a result of these elections is that the reformists will do as little as the hardliners. And in some ways, this duality, this manichaeism that the regime has created is not a duality at all. It is just part of the theater of the regime. And so I think that also is a major political step that the nation has taken in giving up on the dream of reform and change through reform. And ironically, it's something that the West hasn't given up on because they continue to say, oh, the reformist, this one, or the hardliner, that one. And that's a finished narrative inside Iran, but it continues to kind of be the dominant narrative 
within the Western policy and media circles. So for listeners who know less about Iran, I just want to take a step back because I think the political system is quite confusing, right? So you have a president who has, you know, some real powers, but is constrained even once they're in office by the supreme leader. So tell us about the relationship between those two. And then, you know, you're saying, well, supreme leader chooses the candidates. Basically, there's only a very limited number of people who the regime approves of as candidates in the elections, and many others are not able to run, are not able to organize, are not able to present themselves. Tell us a little bit about how that mechanism works. And then I have a f- one more question about the latest election, which is that it seemed to be the one in which there was least of a choice between two people. And so explain why it is. Is it that these reformist candidates make a couple of noises about reform, but actually are not interested in it? Or is it because of the constitutional structure in which what the president does is so constrained by the supreme leader. So explain to us the role of the supreme leader and then perhaps tell us about how to think about this. Is it a lack of will or is it a lack of power? It's both. Mohammed Khatami, who came to power in 1997, was the first reformist president. In fact, his presidency was the start of the reform movement in Iran. He was the beginning of the reform movement in Iran. In 1999, university students took to the streets in support of him and in support of reform. And they were certain that he was their president, that he owed his presidency to them and to their activism. So he would come out in their support. He didn't. And so many students were rounded up, arrested and sent to prison. So when push came to shove, you know, whether it was Rouhani or Khatami, they stood by the Supreme Leader and they declared, whether by force or by choice, we don't know, they declared their full support for the fundamental values of the system and for the Supreme Leader. So at times there were changes that they might have wished to make, you know, like simple things. Again, I go back to the examples of the soccer stadiums that had been a very important issue for women and had brought many, many women to the streets. That would have been a very easy give, but neither president gave either one of those things. And that could have been because the Supreme Leader simply didn't want to compromise when it came to women. And it might have been an easier thing for Rouhani or for Khatami to give up to the women. So sorry to insist on the point, but again, explain to us just the difference between the powers of a president and the powers of a supreme leader. If Rouhani had tried to institute that reform, but the supreme leader was against it, what was the mechanism for stopping that? How was power split between these different figures within the Iranian system? There are councils, there's an expediency council that needs to approve all the legal changes that pass through the legislative body, which is a majlis. And the expediency council has the supreme leader at its head. So you can pass whatever laws you want. Once it gets to the expediency council, they can be vetoed. And that has happened over and over again. Even the candidates that want to run for presidential elections step forward to run in the elections. They have to be approved by the Supreme Leader in order to be approved to run, and then they can run. So the system has all sorts of levers beyond the constitution, beyond the majlis, in forms of various smaller councils that sit atop all these other legal bodies. And those are the councils and the smaller elite units that 
basically veto and change and undermine every change. Thanks. That's really helpful. And it seems to me, from a perspective of political science, you would think of this as a tutelary regime. So there's different kinds of forms of tutelage in political systems. You know, arguably for parts of the 1980s and 1990s in Turkey, you had a military tutelage regime where you had a kind of democratic system. But if it spewed out something that the military didn't like, the military would step in and make sure it didn't happen. In some countries, that can be a monarch or it can be the courts. There's sort of different forms of these tutelary regimes. And here you have the sort of appearance of power within a president who, you know, at least on paper is elected in a semi-democratic process, but then there's this unelected force behind it that can sort of block or undo anything that that process kicks up. What are your hopes for the prospect of Iran? I mean, clearly you've given up on the idea or think it is naive to think that any kind of electoral mechanism is going to deliver a reformer who, you know, opens up the system and perhaps initiates the end of the dictatorship. Does that mean that hope has to lie in some form of more confrontational activism? Do you think there might be regime collapse at some point? Or do you think that we have to resign ourselves to this sort of theocratic rule for many more decades? Well, there have been several predictions. One has been that the more people become disillusioned in the electoral process, which they clearly have become now, the more the Revolutionary Guards, which is really the most powerful body operating inside Iran at the moment, will brazenly and openly and overtly take over and act. And so it will become less of a semi-democratic theater and more of an actively military or um, Revolutionary Guard performance on the political stage but more openly and not behind the scenes. So that's one possibility. I hope, as I'm sure so many of us around the world always hope, is for the democratic forces in Iran, which are active, you know, women in the last month or so, labor groups have been taking to the streets. I want them to succeed, as we all do. However, I don't see these groups being able to succeed without international pressure, without some form of cooperation from the world beyond to help weaken the regime on the inside. Because, you know, in 2019, in November and December, when fuel prices in Iran were increased, people did take to the streets and hundreds were killed randomly on the streets, you know, some as young as 13 and 14, within the span of a week. And thousands were rounded up and arrested and many displaced. So what we have seen, and I don't think this is unique to Iran, we have also seen it in Hong Kong, Belarus, other parts of the world, that it's nearly impossible for these activists to succeed without the support of the international community. And that's what I think the rest of us need to figure out. You know, we want to see them get the upper hand. How is it that we can contribute to the cause? And I think that's the major question for the rest of us. What form can and should this support from the international community take? It's a million-dollar question. I was very happy to see all sorts of sanctions placed on Belarus after they 
hijack one of the leaders from the plane a month or so ago. Well, this happens in Iran a great deal, but why are we just singling out this one case from Belarus and foregoing other similar leaders who have come to be hijacked? Iran has had several significant examples. There was a French-based journalist named Zam who was lured into Iraq, hijacked by the Revolutionary Guards, brought into Iran and executed. You know, no one squeaked the peep over him. So I think the international community does have certain abilities and knows how to exercise them, but chooses to do so in selective ways. And that just doesn't seem right. We can't, on one hand, try to pretend that we want to push some kind of a nuclear deal through without acknowledging that other wrongs are happening and foregoing our part in supporting the democratic forces and in bolstering their voices and efforts. I don't see how any other treaty or agreement could succeed while we don't seem to stand up for the others who can only help us in the long run. So This certainly is one way. And I think there are lots of other ways. I think, you know, making sure that some of these violators are placed under sanctions, you know, including Raisi, the current president. And there has to be a bigger discussion about this. But what is certain is that these activists around the world, Iran included, cannot succeed on their own without international support. And if we don't take this as part of our global responsibility to stand by them and behind them, then their loss is also ours. One of the things that I sometimes see on my social media feeds is these quite amazing videos of women on the subway in Tehran who are not veiled. And then somebody, often an older woman, berates them for betraying the values of a revolution. And then, you know, some discussion ensues where often other passengers sort of come to their defense. I want to know two things from you. The first is tell us a little bit about the role of that kind of activism and these kinds of acts of bravery within Iran, but also about who gives support for these groups within the United States. I notice on Twitter that for people who retweet those things and who like those things, oddly seem to be from a conservative side of a political spectrum more than from the progressive side of a political spectrum. Now, you know, personally, I obviously believe that women should be free to wear the veil or not wear the veil as they choose, both in the United States and in Iran. But it seems to me that there's a kind of progressive sensibility where they think, well, because some women are being discriminated against for wearing the veil here, we can't celebrate women making the choice to take it off, you know, at great personal risk, despite laws commanding them to wear it in Iran. And that seems to me both confused and quite infuriating. Precisely. You're just salting my wound. Or I don't know, maybe you're just, uh, we're commiserating together. I hope it's the latter. But this is a very, very tragic place where we are. I don't know when it was that feminism ceased to be a global sisterhood. I don't know why other women, no matter where they come from, don't get profoundly excited and inspired when they see a 19-year-old take off her hijab on the Iranian subway and say, I will dress as I wish and you dress as you wish too and leave me alone. 
I don't know when that happened that the rest of us thought that's their cultural issue. It is not for us to intervene in. How did we come to this? How is it that the left, which was the champion of these causes, you know, in 1979, three weeks after the success of the Iranian revolution, it was Kate Millett, you know, America's foremost leftist feminist who was marching with Iranian women on the streets of Tehran, demanding that Ayatollah Khomeini retract his order to restore the hijab to women in Iran. It was her. It was a group of French feminists who showed up to the streets and walked with these women. But all of that has disappeared. And these causes have become somehow, you know, the rightist causes. I don't care whether the left embraces them or the right. It matters not to me whatsoever who embraces them. I just find it incredibly absurd that those people who claim to be feminists who claim to want to see democratic forces succeed can watch an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old in Iran so bravely face these violent actors on the streets and not root for them and not take up their cause and, you know, make buttons and pin them to their chests. That's where we are today. And that, I think, isn't something that's simply holding back Iranian feminists, but the rest of us around the world. It's as if we have lost or forgotten who we are and what we should stick to. And as long as we haven't figured that out, it doesn't matter whether we're in the U.S. or in Iran. We won't be able to make our way forward. And it may not make a whole lot of sense to other people, but it makes sense to me that as long as we don't identify with that girl on the street in Tehran, the chance of Donald Trump succeeding in this country go higher. That we have to recognize that democracy is a universal force, that supporting it in one place would bolster it in another, that we are all somehow interrelated. And as long as we don't recognize that and support that, we are bound to fail no matter where we are. Explain that connection to us. Why is it that a principal defense of the rights of those 1920-year-old women who don't want to wear the hijab in Tehran is connected to the ability of somebody like Donald Trump to succeed here? What is it about the sort of right principles of you know, a generally progressive worldview that is undermined in a way that has sort of domestic political consequences? Well, you and I will have to have another conversation, a longer conversation perhaps, but I can tell you that no matter how we argue it, it is what happens. And to me, there is no accident that Ayatollah Khomeini came to power in Iran in 1979, and then you had the rise of right-wing fundamentalist movements elsewhere throughout the world. There is a way in which the success of democratic forces in one part of the world can and does actually support and help the success of other democratic forces in the world in the same way that, you know, I as a 10-year-old in Tehran prior to the revolution was singing to the music of Inti Ilimani from, you know, Latin America, 
back then, we do lift each other and we also cause each other's failures. But I do think that in some ways it's not very different from the way that, you know, we saw how COVID operated in the last year and a half or two. Why do we think that it's just the biological disease that affects us all? Why do we not think that social diseases spread just as vehemently and rampantly and that they need to be fought in the same united way as any other? Why do we think that in a world that's so much more interrelated as ever before, that it is only these you know, diseases that we have to together fight against and not the others? And I just think that we have passed that stage where we can say the problem of one dictatorship is limited to the borders of that dictatorship alone. So how much hope do you have for the course of freedom around the world when you look forward 25 or 50 years from now, which of course is a difficult or impossible thing to do? How hopeful are you that Iran will be free and how hopeful are you that we're able to contain dangerous anti-democratic forces within Western countries that are now democratic? I am hopeful, not because there are signs of hope, but I think because there are signs of extreme distress, both in America and elsewhere around the world. I can only hope that this great distress, that this great pressure that has been exerted on the American democracy will cause others to wake up, you know, all the rest of us who need to be really alert and begin to rethink and remobilize our forces. It is because of the stress that I am hoping that we will wake up somehow and come together and go back. You know, if there was anything wrong with the Cold War of the late 70s, there was one thing that was right about it, that there was a sense of universalism in our interconnected destinies. And whatever we decide that we want to discard from that era, the one thing that I hope we can salvage is the notion that we need to be interrelated. We need to see our destinies as one and that we need to come together to help each other succeed in our local and universal struggles. Roya Hakakian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.